Hello and welcome to Taking the Lead, a podcast from the Radiology Leadership Institute that profiles radiologists as leaders, seeking insight and inspiration from a variety of perspectives and experiences. I'm Jeff Rubin. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Dake, Senior Vice President for Health Sciences and Professor of Medical Imaging, Medicine, and Surgery at the University of Arizona, and the Thelma and Henry Dolger Professor Emeritus at the Stanford University School of Medicine. An international leader in interventional radiology, pioneer of many transvascular therapies, and past president of the Society of Interventional Radiology, Dr. Dake was responsible for the development and deployment of the first thoracic aortic stent graft, critical insights into the pathophysiology and treatment of aortic dissection, and first reports of transvenous interventions. A leader within the Stanford University Departments of Radiology and Cardiac Surgery for 24 years, Dr. Dake served as the Chair of Radiology at the University of Virginia for three years, and for the past five years, he has overseen the Colleges of Medicine in Tucson, Medicine in Phoenix, Nursing, Public Health, Pharmacy, and health sciences at the University of Arizona. As a regular listener to the podcast, I know you understand the importance of leadership development, so I have a very special program to tell you about. The RLI Leadership Accelerator is designed for all radiologists who are looking to take on a bigger role in their organizations. During this 12-week online leadership training course, you'll learn how to align radiology with your hospital and health system and master the skills you need to advance your career, including what it takes to succeed as a leader in the hospital boardroom, critical skills in radiology operations, negotiations, and finances, and how to be seen as an effective radiology leader by other departments. This focused leadership course will give you the tools and know-how to build your executive skill set and drive change from the reading room to the boardroom. How do I know what an impact this course can make? As one of the four faculty members leading the course, I have received warm messages from former program graduates about how they were able to directly apply methods and insights gleaned from this course to advance their leadership journeys and confidently take on greater leadership roles. The first session kicks off on January 18th, and we'd like to offer our Taking the Lead podcast listeners a 15% discount off the standard fee when you register before January 15th. Simply register at acr.org accelerator and use the code RLIPOD15 at checkout. I hope you can join us for this impactful leadership training course. Mike, welcome. Thanks, Jeff. It's great to be with you. So let's start at the the very beginning. Where were you born and raised? I was born at Memorial Hospital, South Bend, Indiana. I was raised in South Bend, public schools throughout high school. My parents were in South Bend basically because of Studebaker, the car company. My grandfather had been sort of a nomadic worker in factories throughout Michigan and various independent car manufacturers like the LaSalle and all sorts of companies that were in existence transiently. And their home was in Lansing, Michigan. They went to the same high school together, were married, went to what's now Michigan State. At the time was Michigan Agricultural College. And then the war came. My dad went off to the war And when he came back, his parents had moved to Indiana, where my 
grandfather was head of the assembly line at Studebaker. So he came back to Michigan, but then shortly went down and got a teaching job in a public high school in South Bend. And that's where I was born. And that's where I was raised and went through high school. Wow. Excellent. And so your dad taught high school throughout your childhood years? Yes, he taught high school at John Adams High. He then became principal of James Whitcomb Riley High School. No one will know that name, but he was dubbed the Hoosier poet, James Whitcomb Riley, and then became assistant superintendent of schools and finally superintendent of schools. Fortunately, I was out of my high school training before he assumed that position. And he wasn't principal of my high school, thank God. So that that worked out well. And then after that, he took a job with, uh, he was given a federal position in charge of integration efforts in at the Fort Wayne School District and other school districts around the state to sort of make sure that the mandates of the federal courts in terms of integration of public schools were carried out. Wow. So interesting. And your mom, did she work outside the house? Yes, she was a school teacher as well. She was a home economics. I don't know if that's what they called it, but she was, you know, taught domestic skills around the house. And I've always thought she had the real business acumen and in a different age, a different time, could have easily been a CEO because she kept everything in running order. But back then, that was what she did. And her mother was killed in a car accident. So she grew up without a mother for the most part. And father took care of her. Interesting story. He was principal of a high school in Traverse City, Michigan, which is now a trendy place to be. But back then, I'm not sure it was so trendy. He had a brother who attended the University of Michigan. And the brother had a fraternity classmate who was from Korea and in the U.S. by himself. And after they graduated, they didn't know what to do. So they started embarking and growing Asian vegetables at the time, which was called Chinese vegetables. And they had some farms around Michigan and Ohio. And one summer day, they were having a farm picnic and people in their farm families were there. It started up raining and a thunderstorm passed. And my grandfather's brother and his fraternity brother closed the, the the barn door, which had an iron flashing, and lightning hit the barn door and electrocuted both of them on the spot. Boom. Out. Dead. So my grandfather, the Korean fraternity brother, had no other family in the U.S. and no one knew how to you know contact anyone. And so my grandfather inherited this nascent Chinese vegetable farms that he knew nothing about. So he ran them for a while. And back in the day, Jeff, probably certainly before your time, but you remember these names, there were two main Asian vegetable, canned vegetable that was mainly chow mein, chop suey type stuff. And one was Chongqing and the other was Lechoy. So my grandfather sold Lechoy to a big holding company, Beatrice Foods, and that's that story. Wow, what an interesting background. And and so you were growing up also essentially in the shadow of Notre Dame University. And in South Bend, it seems hard to separate any childhood existence from that great institution. Did you align? Were you involved in any way with what was happening over at Notre Dame? 
Yeah, my, well, that you bring up, it's very insightful, you know. At that time, it wasn't like the type of community academic relationship that we have today. And it's certainly not what we experienced in Tucson with the community, very supportive of the university. Back then, there was a town-gown tension. The university was not a major employer in the city. It's now the number one employer. But back then, there was Studebaker, Bendix, Singer sewing machine, Oliver farm implements. So Notre Dame was way down the list in terms of having a real influence. And you said a great institution. It is a great institution, but back then it wasn't a great institution. But in 1973, with a stroke of a pen, it became a much better institution when it went from male only to co-ed. That obviously increased the applicant pool, doubled it for the same number of spots. So they really made a trade up in terms of the academic milieu and and the standing and profile of the university. Now, of course, like you suggested, the university and the community are very much intertwined and have a collaborative relationship. But back then, I think maybe only five or six graduating seniors from high school in South Bend ended up doing college at Notre Dame. So it wasn't quite the relationship. I went out and I sold programs on Saturdays, football games. My father taught summer school at Notre Dame in the education department. But there was a there was sort of a moat around that campus that the university was the university and the city was the city. Do you have any brothers and sisters? No, I did not. My mother experienced a, I guess you'd call it a stillbirth before I was born, but no no living brothers and sisters. Okay. And growing up, in addition to going to school and to being the son of two teachers and a school, school administrator, what sorts of activities did you engage in outside of school? I always, like most people growing up during the summertime, we would involve all the public parks and that that was centered around the schools that we went to. And, you know, you played baseball and little league and all these things and spent most of your day leaving home about the time your father left for work and you'd go to the local school and basically hang out all day playing a variety of different crazy games from spinning washers into cups, you know, stuff, marbles. I mean, can you play marbles, you know? I was actually the city champion marbles, which of course was worth, nobody else was interested for the most part, but you know, you, you picked up all these ridiculous you know, sort of activities during the day that had no redeeming value much beyond, you know, passing the time in the summer. And my neighbors, of course, would be going off to various swimming pools at country clubs and stuff, but we didn't belong to any of that stuff. So I spent most summers on the playground. And then between middle school, which was called junior high back then, and it was only seventh and eighth grade, it didn't have ninth grade, high school was a four-year proposition, we moved. And it wasn't quite as traumatic as I envisioned it might be, you know, leaving the friends you had. And to be honest, the friends I keep up with now are mostly college friends. You know, there's only one person I can think of back from South Bend and and the public school years that I keep in touch with. I'd like to keep in touch more, but The high school I went to eventually got downscaled to a a junior high and it lost its momentum in terms of, you know, reunions and things. And I was 
very hopeful that 40th, you know, all this, all this stuff we'd have or you, but that never got organized. So no, in high school, I played tennis and basketball and all the usual things and worked on the newspaper. And, you know, it was a, it was a good place to grow up. It turned out that when my father was teaching school, he had in the, well, I should, I just, for what it's worth, this might be interesting to listeners. You're familiar with John Wooden, of course, the UCLA famous coach. Well, sure. when he left Purdue before he went out to UCLA, he taught public school in South Bend. That was his first job. And his homeroom was next door to my father's homeroom in high school. And not that they were super close, but every book that John Wooden ever published, he sent to my dad a copy, but it was always inscribed to me. So it was to Mike, you know, as, and his penmanship to this day still has an impact. I mean, it was the most beautiful writing. This is this, you know, the John Wooden legend, the pyramid of success, the whole bit in its early nascent form, you know, and I still hold him as something I like to read his pithy aphorisms and stuff. I mean, the guy was really had it going on. What a great connection. I I got, I can't let go the city championship in marbles because being champion of anything is never a random outcome. So I got to ask you, you know, what was the secret to being the top marbles player in the city? I think it was a lack of competition, Jeff, to be honest. (laughs) This was almost champion by default, you know. I mean, we went and I only think I had to play two rounds, you know, and you're playing in this dirt at some place. You know, all these championships, as you move through the city, I mean, South Bend has really suffered a downgrade. I mean, it used to be a city of between 225, 250,000, which is a legit city. Now it's, you know. It's lost all that manufacturing foundation and and real support. So it's about 125 now. But at the time, you went then to a sort of a central location where all the people from the various feeder schools would supposedly show up for the play down for the championship. And there was like a paucity of interest in marbles at some of the other schools. So I got to tell you, I probably just sort of lucked through on that whole you thing. You picked the right sport. Ne- I never, I ne- that was the end of the marble career right that there. Was it, right there. I took well, my little ribbon. Good end on top. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what was your first job outside the house? Well, I worked jobs in at the end of high school, between high school and college and throughout college. And my first real job was, of all things, a uh, utility bank teller. In other words, I'd get called in the morning and told what branch of the first bank and trust I would show up at, which I thought was sort of interesting. And I had to learn where the holdup money was. You were supposed to, obviously, if someone came in and held up the bank, you had to make sure without fail that you gave this specially marked money to the bank robber so they could track them. And there was also underneath the teller, when you put your hands up, there would be a sort of spring-loaded button that you would, with your knee, activate. And that would cause a silent alarm to sign, supposedly, at the police station, and they would come. So obviously, going at a different branch every day, you know, I had my 
trials and tribulations. And as you know, there were no automatic tellers back then. And on Friday, all the people in the factories, because it was a factory town, would come in and there'd be long lines at each teller. As banks, you go into a branch now and it's just, you know, they're, they're people, but there's one teller working. You know, we had like 10 tellers across all paying out their money. And sometimes it got so chaotic that once indeed I I gave out the holdup money to some unsuspecting souls, you know, and I wasn't sure whatever came of that. And then in another branch in the morning, we were getting ready to open the branch, and all of a sudden we got surrounded by police cruisers and people coming into the bank and all this and wondering, everyone's going, what happened? What's going on? What's you know, Well, we got an alarm, a report of a robbery and they went down through each teller and looked at the special button under the cage and you'd be sitting on of course high top chairs you know doing all this stuff and when they came to me the guy reached under and just took the button and boop put it back down (laughs) (laughs) so I had a scattered reputation for havoc and then when I'd quit that, I went to wait tables at Nicola's Pizzeria on Michigan Avenue. So I was running two jobs at the time, and I'd get home. And of course, one job, you didn't have any money. You had to wait to get your check. The other was all tips. So I'd count all my tip money before I'd go to bed and then wake up and do it again. And I, I have great respect for people who wait tables or wait, because you know I'm very aware of the things that can happen, such as you go to the kitchen, you've got a table of six, you're able to bring out four meals, you go back to pick the other two up and you've only got one, some other waiter took the other, you know, and you go back to the poor table, have to explain, there'll be a little wait for the six person's meal, be, you know, oh God, it was always a never ending sort of thing. It's great experience, no doubt, working in food service, waiting tables. (laughs) Did you hold any leadership positions in high school? Yeah, I was uh, I was sports editor of the paper. I really liked journalism, Jeff. I liked I liked the whole idea. I don't not sure I'd like it now, but back in the day, I I sort of liked that, and I was also I think the student council president. That was sort of a more titular role than functional. But the one thing that that I liked about journalism is it it afforded you an opportunity to develop your own style. And that's very important in writing. And in my job today and other jobs, I really value people who can write well. It's something that I think we don't really give enough merit to. And I'm sure you have the same thing. You know, if you're someone who you know can write well and you can say, could you draft this memo? Could you make this up? And it comes back and you don't have to line edit. Oh my God, you just love it. That's somebody you want to hang on to. So when I went to college, I I also wrote for the newspaper and that had a real imprint on me. But the roots of that were back in South Bend and, and working on the school paper. After high school, did you go straight to college? Yes, I went straight to college. I looked around and, of course, being in the Midwest at that time, we had not heard much less ever entered our mind or considered that somewhere like Caltech, Stanford, UCLA, Berkeley existed. You know, that was not. We looked east and maybe somewhere around the Midwest. I ended up matriculating at Harvard. I think I was one of six or nine people from the state, each one of us firmly convinced that the geographic quota had shined its light on us so that we had been able to to have that opportunity. And that 
was a good, very good experience for me. And that's where I have my, my closest friendships remain after all these years. And I look back at that thinking that I could have taken much better advantage of my time there than I did, but still feel blessed and appreciative of the opportunities I did have, not only in the classroom, but most of it outside the classroom. What are some of those opportunities? Oh, well, you know, as I mentioned, the Harvard Crimson at the time was it was such a tight group. I mean, I could go through the people, but just amazing people who are now in associate editors of the Washington Post, publishers of the Dallas Morning News, on Washington Week, E.J. Dion. I had a sports cube where the people in that sports cube, if you like history and read historical novels, Evan Thomas, these were all my guys, you know. These were these are people who are, you know, amazing. And we ran with guys who were not, you know, one of my good friends is, it was Solicitor General of the U.S. You know, these were people who were wicked smart, not in the same way that Stanford and Caltech are wicked smart or MIT are wicked smart. It wasn't a necessarily a technical or even a scientific smart, although those people existed. But the majority of the which were more in the humanities and politics and and sort of those type of engagements. And so when I got up to my senior year, a lot of the people who were in the leadership role, and this was the time still of hot lead, Jeff. I mean, this was, you know, putting the pages in with lead and we had linotype machines in the basement of the building, churning like giant locomotives every night. And uh, great experience. I just... Oh, God, what a great... And that, every reunion we have, the Crimson Dinner to this day, and I just had my 50th this year, is the absolute zenith event. Everyone, it's, and the peop, it's just an amazing event, the people who are in that class. David Ignatius, who writes, you know, it's just amazing. Any event. So Rune Arledge, who was a guy who started out in sports at ABC, Wide World of Sports with Jim McKay, came to me and and asked if I would like to, you know, interview for a job as being some lackey associate producer for ABC Wide World of Sports. Well, I didn't quite understand all of that, what that meant. And I decided I was sort of intrigued by a job in the Foreign Service. So I took the Foreign Service exam and was invited to go down to New York to interview. And I was a physical sciences major which included everything in science except biology. So geology, engineering, biochem snuck in there, physics, you know, but not biology. So I didn't have a lot of history. So I got in this room, which was sort of a lowbrow kind of like a scholarship thing, but there are people around. And the first question is, can you tell me what you know about the political climate of the Balkans during the 19, you know, the teens, you know? I could only think of, I knew nothing about that. You know, in retrospect, I don't know what I was doing, but you get those. All I could think of is what some capitals of the countries were, which wasn't appropriate to, you know, it was just a complete blank. So that was a short-lived thing. So at the time, time you couldn't go to business school. Anyone who went to business school was absolutely, people at the Harvard Business School were reaching across the Charles River, literally begging seniors to come over and you know, go, but nobody would, because if you were in business, you were a 
bad dude, you know? So I decided medical school and that seemed to be a lot of people, you know, a good fit. So I, you know, you always wonder, do you do what you do because it was, did you make the right choice? Or were you not brave enough to do something, you know, else? Or I still remember that scene in, in the Blues Brothers, which I'm sure you've seen, where James Brown is the minister of the church and the Blues Brothers go to the thing. And he said, I woke up this morning and I heard a terrible sound or something. And it was the sound of those who, who were screaming, whether they, because they did not live the life they chose not to live, you know? And so... It's always, you know, these questions that you pour over for decades. Do you hoard or do you spend? Do you work hard or do you take time to smell the road? You know, all these questions. But but as it turned out, I found my way and, and I went to Baylor College of Medicine, which was another good experience for me. At that time, Texas was going through one of its sinusoidal periods of having an apex of interest, you know, in barbecue and everyone wanted to be a wear cowboy boots and everything. So, and it was a good school and still obviously an excellent school now. I think it's probably better now than it was when I was there, but that was a good experience and then moved west. Let me just stop you there for a minute and just kind of follow up on a couple of things if I can, because I mean, your passion for journalism just kind of came through so strongly in those stories that you told. And I can't help wondering, did you ever consider pursuing journalism as your career as opposed to... Yeah, I think I was scared, Jeff. I think I felt that this was not a secure enough occupation. There were a lot of unknowns. If you went to medical school, you sort of kicked the can. You were, you know, you were on a path. That path was well-worn. You knew where your next step was going to be. Journalism scared me a little, and maybe I didn't have the confidence to really commit to it. That's where some of these lifelong questions come in. Did you do that because you weren't brave enough to take a risk? You know, that sort of thing. But whatever. Yeah. It worked out well. And I still, I enjoy writing and and I still enjoy, unless I'm heavily editing, I enjoy editing, you know, people's copy as long as, you know, it's demi-coherent. Yeah. So I I love to read and I married a journalist. So, you know, that it all falls together, you know? Yeah. yeah. I, I get my vicarious yayas from that. Good. Real good. And being in the physical sciences would have suggested that maybe you might have headed to engineering or something like that. And it just seems like it's not journalism. It's not physical science. It's medicine. Yeah. I, I, Jeff, physical sciences was sort of a grab bag, a smorgasbord of all sorts of things. So I can't tell you I went in depth in anything that would have led me. A lot of people's careers are influenced by other people and mentors. And I never through a college actually had a, a teacher or anyone who I would call a mentor. Now, my freshman year when I got there, fresh off the Hicks and the hay of Indiana, I had for my freshman fall semester the following teachers. Number one was John Kenneth Galbraith, who was a famous, he had been in the Kennedy administration, had been ambassador to India, was a you know, he was a Canadian, but he had a lot of influence on the U.S. government. I had then James DNA Watson as my biochemistry professor, who is still alive and, to be honest, wasn't one of the greatest teachers. He would always go to the board and sort of 
everything he thought is important, he would write on the board a single word and underline it twice. So at the end of 60 minutes, you had a board filled with single words, all of them underlined twice, which never made a lot of sense to me. I had for government, ready for this, Henry Kissinger. Then I had, well, I'm trying to remember his name in biology. I had the guy who was the punctuated equilibrium guy, who's now dead, an evolutionary biologist, Jay Gould or something like that. And he was the best of the bunch. He was really good. And his whole concept, of course, was that you have all these species that sit on the sidelines while the dominant species, the first team is out there running around in the field. And then something happens like a you know, a meteor or a volcano or something, and you get this punctuated equilibrium where all of a sudden everything's wiped out and the people from the sidelines now get to play in the game, you know, that whole thing. And so evolution wasn't exactly a this slow, steady progression. It was actually punctuated by these paroxysms of natural events. Well, sounds like no shortage of inspiration while at Harvard. And and going to Baylor, I mean, you mentioned that it was, you know, Texas was on the rise and folks were interested in barbecue and the school was good. But I mean, you had many places you could have gone. What was it about Baylor that attracted you? Well, when I went for my interview, they treated me really well. And not that, again, there was someone who took me aside and showed me the ropes, but it was just a very nice welcome, if you will, to the school. They took care of you. You were really, I felt comfortable. And I also had a very close friend of mine from Harvard who was down there as well. And he was from Houston and he was then went to Baylor. And so we shared a house together. So it was, again, maybe it was path of least resistance, just seemed easy. And they treated me well. What the heck, you know? Hi. Good. Sounds like you had a great experience. And so yeah. so you went through medical school. And then what were you thinking as you were going through medical school in terms of the specialty that you would pursue? Yeah, well, I did have a mentor in medical school, Jeff. And that was like most many medical schools. Baylor was home to four different hospitals as you rotated through four different systems. The VA. The old Ben Taub, which was the charity hospital, Methodist Hospital, and you know that, and St. Luke's, the latter two being private. And at St. Luke's, the head of the medical staff and the head of training and all this was a guy named H. Irving Schweppe. And that name sounds very Brahmin, and indeed he was very Brahmin, from an old Texas family with big ranches. And at the time that he went to medical school, the generation before, Galveston was the school to go to if you were a Texan in UT. And he went to Galps. So he was a pulmonary a pulmonologist, ran the ICUs. And I ended up being, so each one of these hospitals had a chief resident, okay? And he sort of ran the chief residence and, and took care of the medical students. And I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but I ended up sort of because of some void in something or other, ended up sort of trial by battle or war, whatever you call it, ended up having to stand in for the chief resident for a while. And so we'd meet, I'd meet with this guy every morning and he, I looked up to him. He seemed like a role model. And so we talked about pulmonary and where to go. And there are a lot of great programs back then, but UCSF seemed like that was going to be a good place to go. So when I got ready to go to 
subspecialty training, I went to San Francisco and did pulmonary. And back then, pulmonary was two years, a clinical year and a research year. And it's very interesting that when I was a medical student at Baylor, a close friend of mine, also from Texas, we drove a bright orange Ford Maverick out to San Francisco and did their standard radiology externship, which was nothing except being in a classroom all day learning, looking at films. But, and we lived in a dental fraternity during the summer, you know, up on Parnassus Hill. So I did have a taste of radiology, but I went as a pulmonologist. The other thing that's interesting is that I still meet up with some of those classmates from Baylor. And one of them is a very notable guy that I used to play basketball and football with all the time. Was named Carl June. Carl June is the guy who started CAR-T therapy at Penn. So probably in line, eventually you get the Nobel Prize. But he and I still keep up. But I went out to UCSF. And as you know, you rotate through three hospitals there. There's the San Francisco General, there's Moffitt, and there's the VA. And it turns out in pulmonary, your clinical year, you do six months at Moffitt, three months at the other two. So after about five, my first five months, I got assigned all five months at Moffitt. So I was going to do my first six months at Moffitt. And the head of the radiology training program was someone called Gordon Gamsu. He's now deceased. He ended up eventually at Cornell. And one day, Gordon came to me and he said, do you ever think about radiology? Because I was always in the chest reading room because I was a pulmonologist. I lived in the chest reading room. And I said, no, why would I ever think about radiology? And he said, well, think about it. And I said, well, why would I think about it? And he said, turns out that there's an unexpected opening in next year's class of someone who was accepted but now is going to do something else, come back. So I went back and I thought about it. And this was just the time when MR was just really nosing into things. And every single one of the faculty at UCSF was enhancing their career by basically recapitulating everything that'd be done with a CT scanner on an MR scanner. Same study, same everything, just different scanner. So this was like easy money. They were just padding their CVs with all these series of things. And they had one of the few scanners available at that time. So I said, Okay. So I went to Gordon. I said, well, I thought about it. What do you think? And he said, you know, you could cut off a year because of your pulmonary training. And I said, really? So I said, well, let me think about that. So I went to a couple morning and noon conferences. At that time, UCSF had a morning conference, had a noon conference. Conference was exclusively always unknowns, unknown cases presented by the top faculty. And they took it seriously. So Dr. Margulis would present. You know, this was a big deal. So I went and in the back just sort of got in a chair and crunched down and listened and they threw up a bone film and the residence guy said, what's the differential? It was very formal. This was no informal BS. This was formal. And the guy said, well, it's either eosinophilic granuloma or PVNS. And I said, I've gone through four years of medical school, a full residency at internal medicine, pulmonary fellowship. I don't even know what the guy is talking about. You know, I've never heard of either one of those things, you know. And so I went back to Gordon and said, I can't cut any time out. I got it. It'll go full vaunts. You know, I'm going the full time. And of course, UCSF, like today, they like to get people who've had extra training and makes them look good. And, you know, and they would give these people more research, more research. But it came to my mind that taking research during your clinical 
residency was probably a road to ruin for me at least. And I needed to get the full experience. And so I did. And during that experience, I got exposed to interventional and that was perfect for me. All the things about pulmonary that I didn't like, which were at the time, almost every illness I was treating was a habitual self-imposed problem due to smoking. And I didn't, there wasn't much I could do about it, but I did enjoy the patients in the clinical. So I had that in interventional and yet I had all this procedural stuff, really cool technology. It was a perfect love affair for for a career for me and a, and a great fit for the things that I was interested in. And with a great mentor of Ernie Ring, who was come from Penn to UCSF, not a long time before, maybe three or four years before. So that transition occurred seamlessly after that. Wait, wait, I want to, I want to ask you one, one thing yeah. before we go after that. And that is, is that, so IR interventional radiology was something that came to you after you were in the radiology department and yes, you know, so, so the decision after committing four years to internal medicine with your chief year, plus a year of pulmonary to sort of yep. say done with that. Now I'm a radiologist. It had to be more than people just writing papers with MRI. I mean, what, oh, yeah, yeah. what was it that caught your imagination? Well, you always want it to be a pull rather than a push. You don't want to be leaving because, you know, but in point of fact, I couldn't see myself being a pulmonologist in a sustainable mm-hmm. manner. And this seemed exciting. It had a real energy. It had a tremendous voltage associated with this look like you wanted to catch on this wave and take advantage of it. And in my mind, I sort of thought, well, this all I've done all this work, but I think there was sort of a recognition that maybe the two together would be more than just them apart and that I would get some sort of at least nod of the head that, okay, this guy's got some prior training and some special perspective on something. And that never really occurred. That never panned out. But it was the fact that I, I like patients. I did not, I wasn't, I didn't mind diagnostic radiology, but I just saw this field as being so distinct and unique. And it had a strange name that no one knew what it meant. And there was, I ended up, was able to take the pulmonary boards because there wasn't, it was UCSF. I'd fulfilled what I needed to take the boards, which was a year of clinical. So I got my board certification in pulmonary. I had it in internal medicine. So, you know, you could sort of, they'd look at you and go, oh, this guy's got three boards or something or other. And, and so there was a sort of, you felt that it hadn't been a complete waste of time. And in point of fact, interventional of all the specialties in radiology could utilize some of those skills in terms of taking care of patients in certain situations. Yeah. Terrific. Terrific. So you did your fellowship with Ernie Ring in interventional radiology. Then after fellowship, you bounced around a bit. You spent a year as an assistant professor at San Francisco General, followed by a couple of years in Miami with Barry Katzen and Gary Becker at Miami Vascular Institute, six months as director of the Los Angeles Vascular Institute at the Hospital of the Good Samaritan in LA before landing at Stanford just 38 months after completing fellowship. Take us through the progression of those roles and what were you looking for at the time that you did not find until you reached Stanford? Good question. Good question. Because it takes people, and you see it all the time, not just in in interventional, but in diagnostic radiology, you know, people 
it's it's not a one and done. This is my job for most of us. You know, I see it in even the young people, a couple years. Well, so my progression was, and again, when I looked at pulmonary fellowships, I did the whole look around the country. But after that, nada, Jeff. I didn't go look at any other program for radiology. I didn't look at any other program for interventional radiology. And when I finished, there was an opportunity at San Francisco General. It was only going to be temporary. So that's the first six months. And they, oh my God, that was back in the day, you know, talk about the uh, diasonics was our digital unit for doing angio, you know, and it was pretty reading tea leaves and trying to interpret pixels, you know, more than anything else. But that was a good experience to six months. And in the middle of that, I got asked to go to the group at Marin General. And at that time, Marin General was the prime private practice job. And they had no interventionalists. I mean, they had people doing interventional, but they weren't, they did not, they weren't fellowship trained. And they were good guys. And I went there and from the get-go had to get the staff trained, everything trained. Of course, my role was in the basement where the angio was and the group there, the people who were doing the interventional embraced me. There was no tension, very supportive. And it was going well until one day, again, this was the early days of MR. I don't think I'm telling any tales out of school, but the group was one for all, all for one. Everyone got an equal share and there was some seniority, but that was all built in. But people started going out and kind of doing entrepreneurial work to build MR centers. That was the first MR center. And some of the leaders in MR were spending a lot of time on the business aspects of this and not really doing a lot of the clinical stuff. And I would come upstairs after a day of working downstairs, and I'd have this stack of IVPs and other things that had been just thrown at my plate. I didn't much like it, but did it and figured that's part of the deal. But one day I remember it well, we sort of had this discussion of the group that the people who were going out and signing these contracts for MR scanner unit said they should be getting differential share. So now we're going to enter into this all something all groups go for. It's no longer one for one, you know, all, and I was willing to read all these films after the day of interventional, but I didn't much like the fact that people were out there doing entrepreneurial things that I thought was on my behalf, but it wasn't on my behalf. It was mostly to get them extra pay. And so I wasn't happy. And about then, Ernie Ring called me and said, my best friend in the world is Barry Katz in Miami. He's moving from Virginia. So uh, Gary Becker came actually after I left. He replaced me. And along with Jim Beninati, the two of them came when I left. And he said, he's really in need of someone to help him. He's moved from Alexandria down to Miami. He's starting this Miami vascular thing. They got a lot of support, but there was someone down there that was going to be his first partner. And it's not really working out as he envisioned in terms of that guy being able to carry the load because he wasn't interventionally trained. So he needs someone like now. Well, okay, let's go look. So my wife, Barbara, and I went down there, met with Barry and Judy and looked around. And by now, Texas was out and Miami was in. And so that was an exciting place to be. And this was an exciting idea. And Barry had proven by experience that he was more than capable of pulling it off 
from his experience in Alexandria. So we moved down there and I sort of became the workhorse because Barry was doing what Barry does and he was very helpful, but he had a lot of other responsibilities, obligations and organizational things. So about after a couple of years, Barbara and I had a discussion if this was it. Is this is where we're going to live? Because at that point, on just the compensation alone, you're moving up step by step, and you were getting to a point where you might call it, or some people called it, golden handcuffs. You know, I was making compensation that you had to think twice to walk away from. So now was a good time to actually look in the mirror and say, is this where you want to live? Is this the practice you want to have? Et cetera, et cetera. Coexisting with this, as you know, was there was this migration south from UCSF of Mike Federley and Brooke Jeff, well, Brooke Jeffrey mainly, and then some other people from there, and then eventually Mike Federley. He didn't come down initially, but these were people that I highly respected, looked up to, teachers. I mean, that that group at San Francisco General in that period of time was, you know, put them up against anybody. So. Somehow, I don't recall exactly what happened, but next thing I knew, I was presenting sort of a, a grand rounds at, at Stanford, and, and interventional was new enough. And we had interventionalists, but mostly from Lou Wexler, and his legacy was more of a cardiac than an actual body. And Gerhard Wittich was there doing body, but there was no one really doing arterial, and venous work wasn't even thought about much then. And so... Gary Glazer, as we both know, and was chair, and he immediately offered me a job after that grand rounds. And so I went back to Miami and said, okay, we're going to go back to California. Yeah, yeah, that's great. So we moved back. And, you know, it was a chance to take a leadership role and, and build a section up in a different way than it had been. And I always think fondly of the time in Miami and remain very, very close with Barry. We talk all the time, but in retrospect, it was the right thing to do for me because I entered into a period that was just so rich and it's just complete serendipity. You look back at the early 90s and what was published. I mean, we were publishing, I mean, ridiculous. I mean, stuff that, and it was only because of that's where the field was. And now interventional is a much more mature and so it's much harder, without a doubt. There's no other way to put it, to make that type of impact that we had back in the early 90s. I mean, we published, yeah, yeah. I can't even think of how stupid it was, Jeff. We published a paper on the use of intravascular stents for intracerebral arterial and venous disease. We had these this group of venous stents in the brain and arterial stents in the carotid, the first publication of a series of these things. And we just, instead, what were you thinking? We just put them together and said, here, here's this, you know, dog's pie of all these incredible things that could have been multiple articles. I I couldn't help but notice that between Miami and Stanford, there was six months or so in Los Angeles. Yeah, that's right. That's your hometown, Jeff, or close near. But yeah, so I was asked to look at a position at this hospital, the Good Samaritan, which was downtown in Los Angeles on Flower or something. This is really downtown. And this was being set up in a multidisciplinary way, much like Barry had set up 
Miami Vascular. This was going to be the Los Angeles Vascular Institute. Now, how did this hospital have the wherewithal to want to pull this off? Well, it turns out the chairman of their board of trustees was Charlie Munger. Now, you will know Charlie Munger from Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett's partner, and he was the chairman of the board, and so he thought big. And so I went out there, and I had some friends who were part of the cardiology contingent, which was LA Cardiology. So I put out this sort of grand vision of how many rooms we'd need and whatever. And they had a very good research operation as well. I mean, basic research, which was kind of amazing. Any event, long and the short of it, Jeff, I got there and they started looking at like six angio rooms and how much that would cost and all the cetera. And Charlie Munger started looking this like a businessman would look at it and said, well, why don't we just change soup brands? You know, if I go over to UCLA and just hire the guy who's in charge of pediatric oncologic bone tumors, I'll have cornered the market with a monopoly and I won't spend a billion dollars like I am for this guy, Dake. So I could see the handwriting on the wall and decided this was not going to work long term. So I had a very frank discussion with Mr. Munger. And next thing I knew, we separated some wild arrangement that I never did figure out with strip California municipal muni bonds, you know, or something or other. To, so it would stay off the books of the hospital, but I would get my severance. And that's when I moved up to Stanford. Got it. Now, your initial appointment at Stanford was as division chief of cardiovascular and interventional radiology, a position that you held for almost 15 years. And during those years, you built a division that was widely considered amongst the top interventional radiology groups in the world. Upon stepping into your new role with a new radiology chair in Gary Glazer, what was your vision for the section and what did you seek from Gary in order to realize your aspirations? Well, that's a good question. I saw tremendous opportunity in two areas, Jeff. That was the build out at Stanford of the sort of vascular aspects of interventional radiology. That was number one. And number two was there was this rich tradition of cardiac surgery. As you're aware, actually it was cardiovascular surgery, although the department was cardiothoracic surgery because that's what the boards are. But the cardiac surgeons in particular, Craig Miller and Scott Mitchell, were also the main providers of vascular surgery care at the time. There was not a vascular surgery division. So these this provided a tremendous opportunity. And from the get-go, I was charged with doing studies on a number of aortic cases, and aortic dissection intrigued me. It was more than just an aneurysm, meaning a, a faulty pipe that had ballooned out, and you just had to somehow figure out how to get from A to B. With dissection, there was clearly intellectual territory that needed to be pioneered, that really needed to understand, because everything we knew about dissection in a textbook at least, was from flaccid specimens on a pathologist or deemer's table or interop observations, which took out the main thing that makes dissection a dissection, and that was flow. So without flow, a lot of these anatomic renderings were just inaccurate, you know? And all, all the branch vessels got involved in what the morphology of the dissection was when an encounter moved from the aorta branch were just 
wrong. You know, it just wasn't right. So I was seeing this stuff. And at the same time, there were a lot of collateral things going on in the field, such as Juan Perotti and in Argentina, et cetera, Julio Palmas, you know, all this thing was with stents and whatever, whatever. And it was starting to coalesce into a very rich thing. And another thing at the time was intravascular ultrasound, which was a coronary thing predominantly, but you could still stick it in branches that were of coronary dimensions and learn some stuff because you could now in vivo real time look at what flow was doing to dissection flaps and branch vessels. So putting it all together, we started off and the surgeons to their credit gave us a pretty good berth or leeway to to sort of practice and especially with people with branch vessel involvement to try and and perform branch procedures either stents or fenestrations etc about that time dave williams came again attracted not by me or interventional but by the surgeon's reputation because they had a such a healthy diet and volume of aortic disease, he came to do a visiting professorship in our division from the University of Michigan. And he had a similar interest in all the ways that dissection worked, more, much more than aneurysms. And so those were the things that just almost propelled me without any active flagellation on my part. You know, they just kind of, I got caught in the stream in the wave and just got carried forward. The reputations grew. We were attracting better and better fellowship applicants. And as you said, at one point, we were well over a hundred or high hundreds, close to 200 applicants for three fellowship slots because we were just writing this stuff up left and right. And you were involved by then in some of this stuff. We can talk about that later, but it was such a special and blessed period. Around that time, I sponsored something at which to this day was kind of remarkable. I invited Juan Perotti to come up from Argentina to Stanford and Tim Shooter to come across, who just joined UCSF. And we had a day of just sharing over in the Falk Research Center, sharing experience. And uh, as you know, his first abdominal aortic case was 91. And we had done some other things and talked about that. And then Shooter and I did an animal with his first branch abdominal device, bifurcated device. And we had performed the first it was the first aortic stent graft in the U.S. That was July 1992. Later in the year, Perotti and Veith at Montefiore, New York in December did an abdominal procedure. But actually before then, we had done an abdominal procedure. It happened to be in a gunshot wound with a pseudoaneurysm. So we actually, our first procedure was thoracic. Our second procedure in September was abdominal. And you know, there wasn't, until you had a series, we were not convinced that it was worthy of writing up. So there was not real nationwide sort of a communication of what was going on. There was regional. And I remember that case very fondly. And these were homemade stent grafts. I was working with the Dodder Institute in Oregon. I'd been up there. We'd done some animals. They were working very intrigued for various reasons. They didn't have the same access to aortic surgery and disease like we did. We had a great working relationship. And the first case we did was a middle-aged man who'd had a coarctation of the aorta as a 
child had been surgically repaired, but now had a, a pseudo aneurysm off the patch of that. And if you go look at that case, it's not the ideal first case because there's a very hypoplastic transverse arch. So immediately you've got a mismatch in diameters between the proximal neck and the neck below the aneurysm, a big, huge spatulated left subclavian artery. And so we put this device in that we had homemade out of Z-stents and woven polyester graft material, pushed it in. We're doing it with Craig Miller through a, a very rather stiff, rigid, semi-rigid Teflon sheath, which we had to place obviously proximal to the subclavian, then we'd pull it back. As we pulled it back, this rigid sheath, of course, goes quang like a diving board into the subclavian artery. So now the distal tip of the sheath is in the subclavian. And I said, Craig, we're not going to be able to do this. He said, what do you mean? I said, well, if I deploy it here and it stays in the subclavian, we've occluded the aorta. And if it doesn't occlude the aorta, we're not going to, you know, if I pull it back, we're not, we're going to get an endoleak. It's just this neck is not sufficient and it's not in an orientation correctly. It's pointed straight due north because of its semi-rigid nature into the subclavian. He said, do it. And I said, what? He says, just do it. And I said, just do it. <laughs> you know, and I was feeling extremely nervous at this point. And so we deployed it and it landed in about the only place it could land that would make it a successful procedure. And I think about all the things in history that I've learned since then where the first case did not go well, not in aortas, but in other things. And the investigators or the physicians just kind of gave up after that or thought, well, I guess I knew why this wouldn't work, you know, type thing. And it worked. So this was only cut film, of course. And I made the subtractions of cut film with the mask. And it turned out that the angio club of the day at that time was held at UCSF with Ernie Ring. We subsequently took that over and moved it down the peninsula. But that was a big deal. And everyone from the Bay Area, of course, as you know, would go to Angio Club and they'd share cases. This was literally like three days or four days max after this case. So no one knew what had happened. And so we went down, people were showing, you know, abscess drainage ability. You got to imagine, nobody, you know, no one in the U.S. had ever done this. And Parodi, some people knew, but they it was kind of out of their view shed. They didn't know. And so I went up and I showed this case of this really impressive, no thrombus in the aneurysm, huge, you know, between a grapefruit and a volleyball, you know, bag of blood up there and the strange thing and showed the subtracted image after the stent graft. And it was no, no flow, no contrast in the angio. And people just were speechless. They're absolutely speechless. Ernie got up, lit a cigarette and left the angio club. He walked out the door and didn't come back. And it was, I think the, people ask you, well, you know, I sometimes am asked in certain lectures, what was your proudest? I think that was the most pride I ever felt in my life to impress my mentors doing something that was just so, people would just, could, what, what? You know, just that kind of, what the thing, you know? And that was that, you know, when it came to after that, there were victories and a lot of interesting stuff, but there was nothing like that. What an amazing feeling and what a great recounting of a truly historic event. And I just want to embellish the history a little bit here for our listeners. You know, when you arrived at Stanford as an acting assistant professor, new chief of interventional radiology, I was at Stanford. I was just two months into my third year of radiology residency. 
The department was fairly small in those days, less than 20 radiologists. So any new faculty member was a big deal, particularly a new chief, a new division chief. And so when I think back to those days, I'm struck by your incredible enthusiasm and spirit as a clinical innovator. You seem to coax magic from a catheter. And endovascular intervention, as you just mentioned, was, was just taking off. And many of the procedures that you brought to Stanford were new to our department. TIPS was brand new. I think I remember the very first TIPS that was done. Peripheral arterial setting, as you mentioned, of course, your pursuit of aortic stent grafting. And I do remember the visit of Juan Perotti, who made the visit to the department just after his landmark publication of the first transarterial treatment of an abdominal aortic aneurysm with a homemade stent graft. And you were hot on his trail with an eye toward the thoracic aorta. And, and one of your great achievements, greatest achievements, perhaps, as you just described, was the deployment of the first thoracic aortic stent graft. So really phenomenal recounting. You mentioned that you were working with you know, homemade stent grafts. And I mean, I, I just remember those days so clearly. Maybe there's, there's one person in particular that maybe I could ask you to just tell a little bit of the story of who seemed to play such a critical role in those days, but was a little bit under the radar. And that was Bud Liddell. Tell us about Bud. Well, I'll start out by saying, to give you who Bud is, well, no, I'll start at the beginning. So Bud had gone to Middlebury College. He wanted to go he didn't know what he wanted to do, but he thought he wanted to go to medical school, but he was going to need a little seasoning between college graduation and matriculation in medical school. And he came out West and somehow we got introduced. I don't even remember now exactly how he would know. And we really told Bud that he was going to be the master stent builder. And it wasn't so much building the stents because we were getting the stents from the daughter, but he would then take the graft material, put it on a PVC pipe, iron all the crimps out of this heavily crimped polyester graft, and then attach it with 2-0 polypropylene suture to the underlying stent framework. And Bud did this for quite a while, and he was at all the cases, and he was basically the go-to guy on all things stent, cottage industry stent manufacturing. Bud eventually went to medical school at Trinity in Dublin. And to cut to the chase, Bud is now the section chief at Johns Hopkins in interventional radiology. So I've kept up with Bud along the years. I just got an e email from him last week. He's ready to be a fellow in SIR, and we're going to take care of that. And he is a magical person who is a heart of gold and was, as you say, seminal in all of this and was there for the first dissection case and sort of was our guy Friday for all things. There's some things that we don't even talk about that were so unique to that period, it had nothing to do with stents. And I'll just mention one of them, Jeff, and that's the just translation of thrombolysis which at the time we were doing thrombolysis, catheter-directed thrombolysis, when I was a fellow at, at UCSF. And it was always sort of a, this black magic, how much, you know, how you diluted the urokinase and how much you would give through the sheath. And I'd be sitting there writing copious notes because it always seemed like I, there was no book, there was no anything. You know, so that was before I got going, but no one had ever thought of doing it in the venous system for DVT. You know, so, you know, he had this thing and it was going along and people were lysing arterial and graft clots. And one day I just, why couldn't you do it in a vein? You know, I mean, what, 
why not? And everyone, oh, no, yeah, no one's ever done it. You know, it's not, you know, but it just seemed like shooting fish in a barrel. Why not? So we did that and then combined it with stenting and wrote the first thing on that. And that's another thing that, you know, it didn't come out with super fanfare thing, but in retrospect, now it's kind of a real staple and daily thing that's done in most IR units around the country. And there was just a a group of those things, Jeff, as you well know, which takes us to, of course, what was called at the time Spiral CT, which where you and I first met. And I will tell a brief story and you can correct any inaccuracies, but Stanford was fortunate enough to have, was it the first in the country? You tell me. It was the first Spiral CT manufactured by Siemens in the country. And that was in a trailer behind the emergency room. And most listeners know, but just to make sure everyone's on the same page, Spiral CT was invented for one thing and one thing only, and that was pulmonary nodules. Because you couldn't scan through a pulmonary nodule or couldn't scan quick enough that the patient would have to breathe and then you get out misregistration and no one could think about looking at these things, how many nodules there were, how big they were, could you biopsy them, all this sort of stuff. And so we had this machine and, and you were at that time, you were, were you a fellow or were you a third year? Yeah, it, it was 1991 and I was actually early in my fourth year of residency. I was pretty enamored with the beauty of projectional arteriograms displaying the complex course of overlapping arteries in the brain and the abdomen. Non-invasive angiography had not been developed yet, and I was doing some exploratory investigation into the feasibility of gadolinium-enhanced pulmonary MRA with Bob Herfkins when I heard about the trailer-based somatoma spiral CT scanner being cited in early December at Stanford. I was headed to the RSNA to present an abstract on a totally unrelated project where I actually had passed an NG tube on myself to document its visibility on a spinecho MR sequence after injecting a stand-up column of olive oil into the tube. Th- that's a whole other story. I was at the RSNA and I thought, this might be a good opportunity to learn about spiral CT. So I went to the only lecture on the topic at the meeting in 1991, which was given by the inventor of the technique, Willie Callender. As you mentioned, the only clinical application for spiral CT that was touted at that time was the ability to capture the entirety of a pulmonary nodule during a single breath hold in order to measure and characterize it confidently. On the flight back from Chicago, however, I was thinking about spiral CT and my enthusiasm for vascular imaging, and the idea occurred to me to use the volumetric acquisition of spiral CT to image blood vessels during a rapid injection of intravenous contrast to capture the arterial phase of the injection. I knew that we would need thin section imaging to effectively reproduce medium-sized arteries. The somatome plus S was capable of a 30-second long scan, and with 3-millimeter collimation, that meant 90 millimeters or 9 centimeters of longitudinal coverage in those 30 seconds. The only arterial territory that conformed to that coverage that I could think of was the renal arteries. So I spoke with a couple of attendings, including you, to back me up, and then I searched the CT schedule for a potential subject. In those days, the requirement of IRB approval to do a patient to test new ideas wasn't a requirement, and so 
when I saw we had a patient scheduled to assess a meningioma and realized that those scans simply required a drip injection and then a two-minute delay, I called the referring doc and asked if he minded if rather than a two-minute drip that I injected the contrast at a high flow rate, five cc's a second, and scanned through the patient's renal arteries while we were waiting for the contrast to fill the meningioma. In those days, it was no big deal for me as a resident to hang out after the scan at the CT council and noodle around with the data. And during my noodling, I found a processing option that allowed me to set a threshold and create 3D shaded surface displays. And that was it. That was our very first case. The thing started coming out with reconstructions that at least me, I could never have imagined in a million years would be produced. And to this day, I still, in my heart of hearts, think no one at Siemens knew this was what could be produced. And these images, you know, a little jerky, but still, unmistakably, the future of CT scanning was before our eyes. And no one seemed to notice it or recognize that this was even a potential. And Mike, what was really so critical about those early days of CT angiography was both your enthusiasm for this exciting new technique and your commitment to acquire correlative conventional angiography on almost everyone that I imaged with spiral CT. If you were doing a diagnostic angio on somebody, then you were going to make sure that they were going to come to me for the CTA. And being able to have that angiographic CT correlation was fundamental to our establishing the value of CT as a potential replacement for conventional angiography. I felt like really nothing more than a passenger in the back seat of the whole operation there. But this is IR was going through an incredible growth period, likewise experiencing similar almost, oh, just doubling every week of, of the amount we were learning and being able to publish with, with what was called spiral CT. And we all benefited so much from that. And it was a remarkable period, much like going off a couple of years, our first treatment of a aortic dissection, which now both thoracic aneurysm repair and going into branch grafts and heading towards the aortic root and all of that and type A dissection. But thoracic aneurysms and thoracic aortic dissection, I mean, what we did at that time at Stanford with everyone working together, that's the standard of care now, as you're well aware. But I'm here to tell you that I could have done the first case of dissection probably two years earlier than we did it. But I was flummoxed by this concept that everyone telling me that if you covered the primary tear of dissection, the false lumen would thrombose, but any branch that came off the false lumen would probably be lost because the false lumen would thrombose. And if you didn't actively cover the primary tear, you'd still have flow in the false lumen, you wouldn't be doing anything and all of this sort of stuff. And it, I had a bit of a crisis of confidence in, you know, people were telling me this stuff and I was going, well, they're probably right. But the more I looked at pathologies and, and could see that anytime you encounter a the aortic dissection encounters a branch such that the flap comes off in a way that's perpendicular to that branch that you're going to have the extreme ostium as a portal, if you will, in the flap. So there'll be this communication. And once I'd finally convinced myself that that was going to be safe, we started out. And that patient's now, I think, 25 years out, 26 years out. 
and still alive and doing well. He was a Laotian immigrant who lived in San Jose, who had acute B dissection that was complicated by some mesenteric ischemia. And those early cases were such an adrenal squeeze, you know, that we did a lot of things that we, quite frankly, never considered noteworthy that today we kind of kick ourselves like some of the cases in the thoracic aorta, we might inadvertently cover the carotid. So he'd come in through a carotid subclavian and do what we'd call a parallel branch graft or a chimney graft, which we never wrote up. And now, you know, what the, what the, likewise in dissection, that first dissection, we put a stent graft over the first 12 centimeters, and then we put bare Z stents below. And now guess what? That's the first petticoat and that's what everyone, you know, so we didn't think anything of it. We just thought it was kind of survival bailout stuff that, you know, you do what you do. Yeah, it was an absolutely amazing time. And, you know, I, w- I want to turn a little bit to some of the sort of epiphenomenon around the ability to have this kind of innovation, this kind of development. You know, first question I would ask you is how critical were cross-disciplinary teams to your success in advancing these endovascular therapies? Absolutely critical, Jeff. And you know that. I mean, without strong radiology and imaging, we wouldn't have had the insights that allowed us to go forward. We wouldn't have been able to plan cases successfully. And without cardiac surgery buying into the idea, no way. We would never got off the ground. Absolutely no way. If they had been adversarial or strictly against it, we'd have never seen patients. So total critical. And that still exist. As you know, vascular surgery eventually became a a very strong division within the Department of Surgery. But up until I left Stanford, we did all the cases with now with Jason Lee and some with Chris Zarens, you know, and there was a period where they did abdominal, we did thoracic, and sometimes there was overlap. We did them together. But when Jason came, who's now the division chief, all the thoracics we would always do together, the dissections. And we made some incremental progress in a number of areas. But as I said, that that early work with the cardiac surgeons was that real time where you get that exponential growth and then some maturation and rounding out at the top end. Yeah. I mean, as you, as you, you alluded to, you know, medicine can be notoriously territorial. And within the context of these teams at Stanford, there wasn't much of that at all. And I think that that's what really enabled things to flow. So I want to ask, what advice do you have for innovators seeking to disrupt standards of care with innovative solutions to overcome some of that territorial nature and to rise above to support these high-functioning cross-disciplinary teams? Well, I think, Jeff, above all, and I think you would say the same thing with your imaging, you have to be providing something of legitimate value to them, okay? If you're going to engage with another specialty to try and do something together, I mean, you're not going to invent a disease. The diseases are out there. They're being treated in a certain way. Some guy's using a putter. It seems to work. He's going to keep using the putter. How are you going to tell him, convince him to use another putter and that you should be involved in it? Well, you have to show some bring some value. And in our case, it was clearly this superior knowledge fueled by imaging of what aortic dissection manifestations were and to talk the talk in a way that they believed you, you know, that, oh, wow, because look, you can see this, you know, that intervascular ultrasound is 
CT, it's MR. Look at this, how this is working here and what needs to be done. It's still to this day in dissection is the advantage that radiologists and in particular interventional radiologists have over surgical specialties to be able to look at a CT and say, you don't need intervascular ultrasound. I can tell you everything you need to know by just looking at this and what's causing it, what the pathology is and what the result of the intervention is going to be. And you have to have that deep, deep knowledge to be able to pull it off and to justify your existence in the whether it's the procedure or the vascular conference or the whatever it is. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you know, as we've been talking, the mid late 90s, early 2000s were a remarkable time. And you were a visiting professor in over 30 departments around the world. You delivered keynote presentations for diverse medical communities beyond those directly associated with radiology and were widely viewed as a singular expert for a number of innovative procedures and therapies. The term rock star can be overused, but for you, it was apt. What advice do you have for an ambitious young radiologist seeking to similarly experience that kind of success? Well, you have to be very strategic about the opportunities. You have to look, where is the unmet need? Where are we limited in what we either are imaging or treating or whatever? And how can I introduce in my role, something that's going to have build a better mousetrap. And then you have to demonstrate it, prove it, be passionate, almost evangelical, and go out there. During those days of dissection, when I had enough reps under my belt that I really understood dissection and how branch vessels were involved, I was bringing something to the educational community that no one else knew. I was providing them with insights that no one had ever been able to communicate. And they'd come away from lectures literally just feeling they'd just gone up steps in the knowledge level. And that, I think, is the best way to really, and then everything takes care of itself, you know, after that. And you don't have to worry about, you know, if, if you're successful at that point, you don't have to worry about anything else. All the opportunities will come to you. But you have to first look around and say, what's not working? Where are we limited by current technology? What can I bring? And many of the tools are mature now, and you, but there's still opportunity. There's always going to be opportunity, whether it's an imaging or interventional. And you just have to be alert and you have to be open to it. And not everything's going to work. And you have to understand that you got to hit some fall balls before you can get the base hit. There's a tendency to attribute success or failure fully on the individual, but environment, mentorship, sponsorship invariably play a significant role as well. How do you contextualize your success with those other factors? Absolutely. Well, it it takes a village and you named some of the occupants of or residents of those villages, all of those things. Obviously, the support and some of its Well, there are many different ways of support. I won't go into it, but that support is critical. If you're not supported by anyone, you may not have the confidence or security to go forward and push into areas that no one's been before. If no one's got your back, you may be a little hesitant to, you know, get out on a limb and do something that might not work. So all those things you mentioned that can sort of be summed up with support. And you're you're 100% right. It, It takes just the almost 
in this day and age, the perfect storm, the perfect sort of arrangement of all these elements that and components that that need to be brought to bear that you really can strike lightning. You had mentioned Ernie Ring as a really impactful mentor. Are there any other mentors or sponsors in particular that you might highlight that were unique contributors to your success? Yeah, I think there are three. Ernie's certainly one. Barry Katzen, we've talked about, is certainly another. And then I did, and this was at a time when really I had done probably more thoracic cases than anyone in the world. I wasn't really looking at being taught any more about that by anyone, not that I don't want to sound brazen, but that was the point. And I just wanted to get more reps with dissection because it's a complicated thing, as you well know. And so I did a sabbatical and most people do a sabbatical to bring back some new understanding, new education, new technology, something. I went to do get more clin- a daily clinical diet of dissections. So I went to Rome and I was sponsored by Plinio Rossi, still alive. Barry Katzen had done a similar thing many, many years before for three months, I think. But I went for a year and took the whole family to Rome and it was an incredible experience. I had my malpractice insurance. I had, was uh, privileges at the La Sapienza, University of Rome, Hospital Umberto Primo. And, but what I did was I would stay there in the morning. I would get a call and they'd say, we have an acute type B in Brescia or we have an acute type B in Turin. So I'd get out to the airport, get on a plane, fly to Milan. Somebody would pick me up, drive me to whatever city where I'd meet the family of the person who just had a dissection, go in, treat the dissection with a stent graft, you know, after the appropriate diagnostic workup, and then go out to lunch, late lunch, and have a great food, get on the plane, fly back for dinner. So after 365 days of that steady diet, Jeff, I not only knew everyone in Italy, and they loved that I would do that and not, you know, they didn't get charged anything for it. It was, you know, they had no financial outlay, and nor did I get any payment from them. But I had 365 new dissection experience that really cemented in, okay, I'm ready for anything now. It doesn't matter what it is. I can probably with 99% accuracy tell you what's going to happen here. What an incredible commitment to do that. And he was very supportive. And we did, of course, cases at his hospital. We did a live case. And Pliny was very senior in his career then, but 100% supportive. Everyone in that institution love the fact that we were there and and doing our thing. Yeah, no, that's fantastic. You know, I want to turn back to the section for a moment because, you know, you really cultivated an amazing group of interventionalists who, you know, many of whom in their own right developed very, very strong reputations. And as you mentioned, you know, with 200, 250 applications for three positions, it really was the prime fellowship perhaps of interventional radiology in the world. And I'm interested in your approach to building a culture that supported that kind of both teamwork and that kind of excellence. And what was your strategy in building your section to support that culture and capabilities that you valued most? 
Well, I think first and foremost, Jeff, it couldn't be built as a top-down thing. I, from the get-go, wanted to make sure everyone had their own area that they could sort of call their own. Their own, they could have their own meal there. They could develop it, you know, with certain boundaries, and that would be their thing. So, if you wanted to talk about venous thrombolysis, it was Charlie Simba. He would go on the speaking circuit for Eurokinase and this new way of providing clot dissolution in the veins. So everybody had their own way and and that allowed them to grow. I, of course, took a lot of the aortic stuff, but as we got past aneurysm and dissection, there was, of course, trauma, mycotic, you know, all these other things. And that gave people their own, you know, they would write up those series. So the garden was very rich and there were a lot of different vegetables to be harvested and you wanted to give everyone a chance so they could develop. And these people went on. A lot of the people who you mentioned have taken those things as, as it's as just the natural course of eat and those things and spawned them into their own like Suresh Vedantham at Wash U, the Venus guy to go to, NIH trials and now, you know, stuff like that. There was just a whole group of it. And as I mentioned before, once that success is established, it becomes sort of a self-fulfilling, you know, we had this without much trouble, as you say, the extreme good fortune of having a blessing of candidates who wanted to come here and they were the best of the best. So it really worked out well. And not only in terms of the clinical load, but also in terms of the administrative and the institutional roles that every, you know, you wanted to spread that out, sort of rake it out. So that was a, a level field across, you know, and it, it worked out well. And, and again, if there hadn't been enough clinical, interesting stuff to go around, who knows what would have happened, but fortunately we didn't have to deal with that. And so everyone felt satisfied, gratified sufficiently, you know, on a career trajectory that would end up in success that, it worked out well. As a testament to the breadth and impact of your innovation, you hold 46 patents for a range of medical devices and drug delivery mechanisms. Oftentimes, young scientists and innovators get so caught up in the pursuit of their research and program growth that patent filing is not considered until the horse is out of the barn. As someone who's never left academia for a full-time job at a startup or other corporate position, What is your perspective on all of the activity that you committed toward attaining those patents and the value of pursuing them? Well, to be honest, Jeff, a lot of those patents came from ideas and inventions that I had, and I had to work with industry to really take it to that level. As you know, academics are are very good at discovery. That's what we do. We're not so good at reducing that to practical and, and commercial marketable, if you will, devices or, or whatever. So in some of these things, like the homemade stent grafts, we could do. And as you mentioned earlier, this was in a time before where there was sort of primitive IRB scrutiny of everything. But now that's not the case. You're going to have to protect your ideas and then take them to some level within a lab to demonstrate proof of principle. But eventually, it just the way it is, and it was even back then when I was very active in this, you're going to have to engage with some company to help you if you're going to have the impact that you would like to have. And so many of these patents came from those. And and, and obviously, the company can't 
steal that stuff. They have to include you in the patent. But, you know, I must say that's a, it's a pretty good catalog of patents, but I'm not sure that I've made, you know, the commercial, you know, leap to making any money off of them. But I didn't do it for that. I really, I can say at the very beginning, I thought, okay, I'll patent this, sell it to somebody, make money, da, 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 retire. And what I've noticed is a lot of the people who've done that and been very successful somehow think that they have the Midas touch, that they're going to be able to do this again and again and again. And serial inventors, they're serial entrepreneurs. That's one thing. That's more business. But a serial inventor or idea generator, discoverer of something that has real value, that is not easy. And most people who hit it big, it's it's pure serendipity. It's roulette. It's luck of the draw. And they just have to understand it's just pure fortune. It's nothing else. And you're not going to turn around and do another and another and another and another. So once I figured out that, you know, I'm not in it to make a a billion dollars. This is actually to to take this idea and have the satisfaction that it actually can get into the clinic and make a difference. Yeah, that's terrific. That's terrific. So after what seemed to be a consistent crescendo for your career as an endovascular innovator and program builder, you decided to leave Stanford, moving across the country to Charlottesville, Virginia to become chair of the Department of Radiology. Why UVA and why then? Two good questions. Uh, Let me take the second one first. About that time, we mentioned Gary Glazer, and Gary viewed interventional radiology as having sort of big shoulders. We had success. We, uh, we don't need a support. You can take care of yourself, this whole thing. And we were, to be just open and frank, having a little tension with the main department. And this is nothing compared to what goes on now with these all these debates of IR is a separate specialty versus DR, better together, better. You know, it wasn't that. But we had some tensions. And I was looking at the whole thing. And I had these concepts in my mind of, of management that if you treated someone in this certain way, this would be the response you'd get, you know, every action, reaction. just, And these were kind of ways that I didn't feel like we were being treated. But it was all theoretical, you know? I mean, until you actually walk the walk, it was just talk. And so I was sort of thinking, am I going to go around frustrated for the rest of my career and not be able to really put these ideas I had in management into practice? Or, you know, should I just go out and see what I could do? At that time, we were right, still riding very high. I had no physical infirmities to worry about or anything. And Alan Matsumoto was very close to me. We've been close for years and years. They were looking for a new chair, UVA. Bruce Hillman was stepping down and he wondered if I might be interested. And so I went out and took a look and I was, I was intrigued. I wasn't sold because Northern California is, as you well know, is a pretty nice place and Stanford is a pretty nice place. But in the end, it's sort of the, I don't know if it was negotiations, but the thing got sort of only because of me kind of got strung along. Eventually they kept throwing money at this thing, you know, at me, you know, for the department. And this got up to sort of 
at the time, again, I don't think I'm telling anything out of school at that time, it was the largest chair package that had ever been offered at UVA only because I wasn't saying yes, but I wasn't saying no. I was just sort of treading water and they were getting, the dean at the time was sort of getting more and more, I guess, nervous, you know, or didn't know what to do with me because I wasn't committing and yet, you know, he wanted me, but I wasn't, you know, whatever, whatever. So I said yes. And so I moved to Charlottesville, but at that time had a number of, I have four kids and those four kids, the oldest and the next oldest were cascading through high school. And I just kept thinking, if this doesn't work for one of them, this transition migration east, I'm going to be so mad and very sad that I decided to keep them in Northern California. To this day, I'm not sure that was the right decision. It created a lot of I don't say stress, but I did a lot of extreme commuting and missed a lot of things I wish I hadn't missed, but they all survived and ended up fine. But I think I would have liked to have been around for some of those milestones in their life. But UVA was a great place. Aside of being a little isolated, not in a bad way, but a tradition, learned a lot, people very supportive after three and a half years or so though the the tug back to Northern California was just so strong that I decided to come back. But the time there as chair was great. Again, I was very lucky. A lot of things I did at UVA and fast forward, we've been doing at Arizona, could never have accomplished at Stanford just because the matrix a lot finer and more crystallized at Stanford. You know, you can't just do certain things, but they allowed me to do a lot of things like build a new reading room of the future. You know, in other words, at that time, because of PACS, a lot of the clinicians that I, you know, used to, they used to come down to the reading room and in my training was part of the richness and why I went into radiology to have these conversations just couldn't fit it in the time motion analysis of their day. So they just look at PACS and make some, their own cockamamie interpretation up on the floor and didn't come down. So I said, we've got to get something that's so sexy and put up a system and program that is so compelling that they're going to have to come down to the radiology department so we can maintain that, that interaction that's so, what I thought was so critical to the satisfaction of a radiologist's life. So we, you know, we went on all the colored light and crazy stuff, you know, and that was fun. And, you know, it, it was a good time to be there. Totally different culture, part of the world, et cetera. And I always look back fondly, still very close with many, many people there. And it was a good move. I just, I'm not sure if the family told in the end, I wish I would have been more willing to take a risk and move everybody, but that's life. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, it sounds like it was a rich and fulfilling three and a half years there. And I'm curious, having been at Stanford for so long and finally exposing yourself to a new institution in Virginia at the level of department chair, were there any particular takeaways from that experience that just, you know, were essentially epiphanies about how to operate within an organization or how to lead that you gleaned from that time that you just had not appreciated through your years at Stanford? I don't think there were any real epiphanies 
Jeff, but it is critical that a new leader takes the time to understand the culture. Now, there are many different ways a chair can be a chair. It can be a coach type chair. You can be an athletic director and they're very different roles. You can let people be independent. You know, there are all these things and you have to, by understanding the culture, I think most of these searches for leaders at some level are trying to fill what was the perceived deficit or void of the last tenured, you know, the last group. And in some cases, it's just that isn't the case. There's been a a great leader who's retiring and there is no void. You're into a maintenance mode. You don't need to change anything. But in many cases, there were things that required a change and you have to understand what those are and figure out how to address them and bring everyone along on the ride. So besides the sort of quintessential listening tour and talking to everyone, you've got to then get all that, put it in the funnel and put out what kind of leader that the group needs. And what in terms of UVA, they were in great shape. Bruce had done a good job, but I think they, by athletic director, I mean the type of person who's going to go around and press the flesh and embrace everyone and be supportive and complimentary and, you know, that sort of thing versus a hard taskmaster coach where it may be need. You know, you got to figure that out. And that's common sense. But until you're in that role, you most people don't have that opportunity to really think about that in a real world, you know, sort of in the trenches type way. So that was good. And of course, it's another level of financial responsibility. You have got to keep your eyes on the finances and be very, you know, make sure that everything, meaning you got to be able to, you know, have a good financial person that you trust and you're, and you really overlook their shoulders, the trust, but verify, you know, you're never going to understand everything. It's just too big, even in many departments, but you have to sort of make sure that you're not getting in risky and areas and and over your skis in terms of financial commitments that I think is, is critical. And then at UVA, one of my challenges, and I think we did a good job is really demonstrating to the clinical faculty, the value of the research faculty. There's plenty of good research, but they were a little culturally separated And so a lot of open houses, a lot of trying to force collaborations between the clinical faculty that could provide patient volume for research studies and the research people understanding what was the unmet needs were in the clinical arena. And I think double down on on that, on showing the research group as much love as the clinical group. Great. Great. So as you mentioned, you went back to Stanford, you got to be with the family. And when you went back to Stanford, it wasn't within the Department of Radiology, it was within the Department of Cardiothoracic Surgery. And essentially 10 years, you were back at Stanford in that role. What opportunities did the appointment in cardiothoracic surgery offer that a return to radiology would not? And what sorts of things were you able to accomplish during those times? Well, one of the issues is my good friend, it's tough to come back to a department that has a, or a division 
where you put a good friend in the leadership role and Rusty Hoffman was division director, what was I going to come back as? I wasn't particularly interested in doing biopsies. The role in cardiothoracic surgery was an opportunity to really collimate in on what I was known for and I'd focused on and I really had my deepest sort of knowledge base in. And that was the aorta and really pursue that. And they were great about that and allowed us to do some interesting research to really, the field was getting more mature, to really look at now comparisons between open surgery and endovascular techniques for aneurysms and dissections. And at that time, I think that it was a unique situation in that I was getting a little more senior and I just felt the physical toll of wearing lead all the time. So, you know, after a few years, four so years, I guess it would be, I couldn't see how this could bow out gracefully. I was starting to get fatigued at the end of six and seven hour cases because all these cases of the aorta were pretty darn complex, often branch vessels, often many different maneuvers and tactics to get the desired result. You know, I I thought I'm enjoying it, but it's not optimal, not optimal physically, not optimal in terms of a future exit, not optimal in that my good buddies and all the people in IR, I wasn't really with them, but people were treating me very nicely in this new group. And we were trying to do things together, working with vascular surgery. So that's when there was an opportunity to uh, be considered to move into a different leadership role in Arizona. And I really enjoyed mentoring my time, that last chapter at Stanford. But I knew that I didn't want to die with my lead on in an angio suite, you know. Yeah. And And so your career took quite a turn when you became the senior vice president for health sciences at the University of Arizona, position that you hold today. Tell us about this role and the scope of your responsibilities. Yeah. Sure. Well, this, like everyone says, why do you want to move up? Why do you want to do this? Well, it's always about the impact you can make and the potential benefits you can afford a greater number of people, whether that's trainees, staff, faculty, patients, the state, whatever. So my responsibilities right now, Jeff, include oversight for six health science colleges, two colleges of medicine, one in Tucson that you know, one in Phoenix. These are sort of uniquely organized in that they're actually separate entities, their own individual accreditation, individual deans and application process. It's not one college, two campuses, it's two unique colleges of medicine. In addition to that, we have public health, nursing, pharmacy, and a new college of health sciences that we created. So I have those six deans that report directly to me, and I report directly to the president. My job is to watch over them, make sure they don't get into trouble, make sure that I help them in terms of support and service, getting what they need in terms of resources to support their chairs, to build programs that they don't end up getting frustrated, that their visions are able to be at least partially achieved. And to also look for opportunities of collaboration so that these colleges are not siloed, that really within the health sciences, they can buttress each other, but also within the university, which leads into a lot of areas that 
may not be typically thought of in the health sciences. And I'll give you an example. We have the benefit of having every college except the College of Medicine Phoenix in the same geographic location, very well-circumscribed, compact community, but just across the street from the main university. So there are a number of different units of great expertise and notoriety within the university that we can draw upon. So one of the things we're doing now are, is looking at the escalating effects of climate change on health. And that these are rich areas that really where I think we are positioned to make strong contributions. And so I have to be on the lookout for those. Other areas that we, I think, can knit more closely together, the health sciences, our initiatives in biobanking so that everyone has access and, you know, the same uniform ability to track specimens and be able to use them. And another big area, we're starting a major project that is the largest capital project the university has ever been engaged in, happens to be in Phoenix, the Center for Advanced Molecular and Immunological Therapies. It's meant to be a national if not international hub for immune research. And uh, it's a big deal. So these and many others that I could go through, but we can take it anywhere you want. These are opportunities that I think require you to push into areas that have yet been untapped to create not only challenges, but, but programs that you're taking a bet on for future benefit to the university. So that's my job. I'm on the lookout. Plus, I'd say this with sort of a, not a straight face, but a mild smile that my goal is always to try and do five years of work in two years. I think it's possible. That's, I try to keep myself to that. What my accomplishments at five years should be able to be done in two years. Now, we may not always achieve that, but that's the goal. And it forces you to put those North Star projects out there, those pilot programs, and work towards them. At the end, I measure myself, and I would hope that others would, on what have you accomplished? What have you actually done in the job? What have you changed? What have you made better? What initiatives are new and proving to be extremely productive and, and performing at a high level? That's rather than the other stuff. There are tons of, of minor daily traumas that come with the job is to come with your job and everybody's job. And you have to rise above them and sort of take the long view, look to the horizon and say, what 10 years from now am I going to be hope that we have accomplished that's moved the needle? Yeah, no, that's that's excellent. I mean, clearly the breadth of responsibility and focus for this position is so much broader than any of your prior positions. How did you prepare to take this role on? Well, I, I didn't have a lot. I mean, I think everything prepares you for the next opportunity. I mean, it's a culmination. Each thing is a, a mini base camp, you know. I've been through all these other things that we've talked about and looking how people respond to what you do and how you can get them to, if nothing else, do the right thing. It all adds up and, and you're just constantly uh, acquiring skill sets, behavior management and leadership that you oftentimes have to lead without and be comfortable with ambiguity. So that ambiguity is, is ever present in a lot of the things I just talked about. And you just have to believe that you've calibrated 
these next steps correctly and that the ultimate goal is one that's going to be worth the effort. What have been your biggest surprises upon becoming senior vice president? Well, when I took the job, as you know, we have a clinical partner in Banner Health who's supportive of us, but that system and many, many systems around the country have variations on that theme. Not having control of the clinical, which was really my shtick, you know, has been, I don't think it's been frustrating, but you have to, I had to adapt. I had to sort of change what I thought I could contribute and how I could contribute. So when I took the job, everyone said, your first Priority is banner, second priority is banner, third priority is banner, fourth priority is banner, fifth priority. Well, it didn't turn out that way. So surprise, most of the stuff I've been able to accomplish, 80, 90% of it has been on the academic side, which I never really suspected because I was told, guy, you got to keep your eye on this and really, you know, and it just hasn't been such that I've been able, you know, Banner does what Banner does, and that's what they're meant to do, you know. But our input into the clinical operations has been not what I thought it was going to be. So, for example, I'd really like to do this program because I think it's the, you know, da-da-da-da-da. Well, guess what, buddy? If they don't think that, it ain't happening, you know. And yet on the academic side, basically, if it's not completely harebrained, I'm doing it. That's that's great. Well, it's good to know where you have running room and to be able yeah. to go. But, you know, I, I'm really glad you brought up the partnership with Banner. In a sense, you know, it seems that the uh, University of Arizona and Banner Health are at the vanguard of academic corporate partnerships for clinical activities. And, you know, m- maybe you could briefly just sort of explain this relationship and the role that you do play in overseeing the partnership. Well, the partnership is governed by a council called the Academic Medical Council, and there are four members from Banner and four members from the U of A, and all hiring, all change of distribution of efforts, all programs, everything has to be approved by that. But the basic agenda is set by our clinical partner. One of my jobs is to make sure that they understand the value of academic medicine, that we're not constantly and sustainably having to justify that value, that education and research, it's truly a virtuous circle. And how, if we're doing cutting edge research, first in man studies, unique things, that's only going to benefit the clinical effort. That the education of medical students and increasing healthcare worker training is going to provide a pipeline for them and that they have to contribute to that pipeline to get the best and the brightest. And so that's kind of the role that is, how do we make them aware, sensitive, and responsive to that, the reality that makes academic medicine, why we went into it, you know? Without that, it's not, you know, what we signed up for. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious, you know, having had this experience now in this partnership and really, you know, seeing how it functions and, you know, the pluses, the challenges, do you foresee a growing prevalence of academic corporate model for university-based health systems in this country? Good question. Let's talk about new realities. One is a a long view. When I was first training and first came to Stanford, it was basically in terms of revenue in the hospital and and from clinical effort, 50% of the charges would be 
paid to the professional staff and 50% to the hospital. As you know, now it's what, 90-10, 85-15, something like that. So the balance of powers clearly shifted in that regard. That's the reality. The other reality has to do with COVID. Pre-COVID, there was you know, a question about the the viability, the survivability, the, the existential questions about the academic medical center. Was it really, you know, or was this going to be the future? Post-COVID, that's not necessarily the case. Post-COVID, the community hospitals are one that are feeling the pinch right now, and the academic medical centers, and by virtue of contracting and everything else, Friday are really in a very uh, much better position than they were pre-COVID. Now, depending on where you started, without a corporate partner, with a corporate partner, may depend, you know, I don't know where you go from there, but I haven't seen a lot of movement, but every day there's some new thing in the news about a new way of doing business. I mean, we just saw here in Arizona yesterday that Blue Cross Blue Shield is going to open their own clinics, nine clinics in Maricopa. You know, where is this going? Interesting idea. Will that work? I don't know. There's all sorts of creative ways to do this and clearly in some way aligning with an insurance plan is critical in this day and age. As long as you're being able to do that and the bigger hospitals and the academic medical centers will be able to do that, I think you have a good chance of doing well. And those provider plans can be your own, or they can initially start out in some configuration with an existing entity. For the most part, the real strong remain strong. I don't think the big guys are are wavering in any way. So uh, I think it's not a bad time to be in an academic medical situation. Amongst the breadth of university programs that you oversee, radiology is just one of many domains for healthcare discovery and advancement. From your current vantage point, what do you foresee for the future of the field and what activities would you like to see radiology lean into in pursuit of a vibrant and impactful future? That's a very good question. And as you say, I'm I'm not right on top of the pulse of of radiology and where the real sort of opportunities lay, but I am close enough that I can give you some views on it. I think that we're so tied to stroke of pen compensation edicts, you know, that, you know, what it's like. We try to sort of look for the best way to bill or to compensate, and then yet somebody changes overnight something and we take a hit and we regress and then we build back up. But I think that the opportunity, everything's going outpatient, okay? 80% of the profits in healthcare system, profits, I'm not saying services, profits is going to be outpatient now. So that is something that clearly radiology has to, to be focused on and find out ways that they can joint venture, you know, whatever it is, but they have to get a piece of that in some way. That's critical because that trend is unavoidable and intractable. It's going to continue. In the hospital, of course, we are the the main center of of control of all things imaging, you know, and we have to maintain that. Doesn't mean we have to monopolize it, but maintenance of equipment that 
that is involved in imaging and stuff. We have to be involved in that. I mean, I don't care. I mean, I care, but if somebody wants something in the OR or this and that, that's probably okay. But we have an obligation and that needs to be not only emphasized, but leveraged, maybe financially even. We have a lot of responsibility here to keep this, all these things running to keep them in compliance, to keep them serviced, to keep them whatever. And that management fee has a, a value associated with it. Now, you know, if the hospital says, screw you, well, then, you know, I don't know what your alternative is, but it's, it's something that is in my mind of, of, of an opportunity. But the main one, I think, is, is again, in having strong outpatient, where it's convenient, where it's a one-stop shop, where really radiology has a leadership role in that. You have served as president of a couple of medical societies, including the International Society of Neurovascular Disease and the Society of Interventional Radiology. You most recently completed your presidency of the SIR in 2021. From the perspective of a recent past SIR president, what do you see as the most important issues facing interventional radiology today? Well, the most important by far, I alluded to earlier, is people coming to grips with and allowing IRs to practice in whatever environment they choose, okay? This unfortunately leads to, and there's in that comes exclusive contracts and all this other stuff and how some groups that have exclusive contracts may prohibit interventionalists from coming in to do that. But at the same token, vascular surgeons or cardiologists who are doing the same procedure that the outside interventionists want to do can come in and do it, you know, you know, all that. But the bigger question is the IRDR conundrum, which has been around for quite a while. But my reading of the drums is that this is coming to a head and it is involved with that earlier issue I mentioned of exclusive contract because many of these IRs want to practice in OBLs and in in settings where they're you know have ownership of the and can direct and and really pursue their vision of what IR is in the community so for example in December early December the ACR is sponsoring a, a forum on this. And a lot of people that you know are going to be involved, Jim Brink and head of ABR, Brent Wagner, other people are going to be involved in this debating the pros and cons. Obviously, from the DR section, most IRs do not pull their own weight versus DRs in terms of RVUs produced. Again, in the past, it wasn't necessarily so. It has been for quite some time, but you know these things can change in the stroke of a pen, so everybody has to be clear. From the IR side, nothing's ubiquitous, but in certain situations, the sense that the DR groups don't want to let the IRs pursue their vision of having a clinic and be able to see patients in their own clinical setting and develop that to what they feel is necessary and ripe for growth. And these things, like I said, have been around, but it's something now that I think the OBLs are putting added pressure and increasing the dialogue. And personally, I feel that it's not that the media, I don't want to see IR leave DR. I think there's too much 
benefit of being together. And I could go through 10 different reasons, but there, there's a lot been published on this recently. And I've written an article coming out in January with Alan Matsumoto in JVIR about this. But at the same token, I do feel strongly that IRs who've gone through the proper training should be allowed to practice as they see fit, you know, that they shouldn't be restricted. And and I don't know how you square that. It's kind of like a number of things. There doesn't, that we're experiencing in the political world now, that doesn't seem to be the ideal solution yet there's an existential need but there's an existential risk and uh, yeah you know i don't know it's not necessarily clear where this is going to end up but the conversation is growing to a higher profile yeah thank you thank you for that we could obviously talk for a long time about that but i'd actually like to turn back to a topic you touched upon which is your family and yeah. you mentioned that you've got four kids and wife, Barbara. Tell us a little bit about your family life and your opportunity to spend time with them, what you guys do. Well, fortunately, the kids are, we raised, we're lucky enough to have four great kids and they're all in different occupations. But again, luckily they're all in the Bay Area. So that's sort of our point. We still have our house in the, around Stanford. And so Barbara comes down to Tucson. I'll go up there back and forth, you know, that sort of thing. The kids, I have one physician, that's the oldest. My son, Ben, is an ophthalmologist. And then I have the next one is a teacher of high school, freshman, sophomore English, right in the bay on the peninsula. And the next one is the only married one. And she works for a company, you know, everyone, this this whole remote work thing, you know, I'm, I'm very supportive of, but I don't know that I have the answers. And I was, every big city now is trying to repurpose all these offices to be residences. And, and you know, she works for a company in LA that's intimately involved in perinatal nutrition, both pre-postpartum and getting at the really sort of specifics that heretofore was just take a multivitamin and it'll be all okay, you know. But, but her husband is a entrepreneur, has an entrepreneurial bug and is involved in an automatic wet cat food feeder. So you can go out, Jeff, and program on your iPhone or whatever, whether you want salmon, chicken, beef, how many ounces you want, what time, how many day, how many times a day. So you can leave for the weekend and make sure that your cat is taken care of. Now they're kibble dry, but this is the first wet. So she feels the need to sort of keep up with him. So she has started a company called Dream Cheese, Dream Cheese, which is vegan cream cheese and already has a number of orders. And we're co-packing with various vegan and kosher, learning a lot about kosher food, Jeff, and what what people have to do to make sure it's approved and all this stuff. So that's her thing. And then the youngest of all things, who trained in architecture at Wash U, that's Emma, is in business development at Starlink. So she and I have a lot in common because we're very interested in taking 
IoT direct-to-sell without modem, which is now going to be offered with T-Mobile, so that every citizen or everyone who comes into the state of Arizona can have health care through their cell with a network-sliced SIM card that will allow them in the 15% of the landmass of Arizona that doesn't have cell phone coverage when they enter it in case they get sick or need to go where for medical that sort of stuff. So we're going to be the healthiest state in America, Jeff. That's the goal. Excellent. Bravo. Bravo. And what what a great accounting of your kids' activities and such. It seems that the apples don't fall far from the tree in terms of a lot of the sensibilities I see directly from you uh, in their activities. It's a great encapsulation. Mike, I want to express my deep appreciation to you both for taking the time to share your story and all of the tremendous experiences that you've had, but also for the tremendous mentor you've been to me over the years and the invaluable role that you played in helping me to develop my career and many of the opportunities that I have had, I can directly attribute to you. It has been such an inspiration to know you and to learn from you, to work with you. And I thank you so much for spending time with us today on Taking the Lead. Well, thank you, Jeff. That's too generous. I really appreciate it. And all I can say is edit liberally, okay? (laughs) As regular listeners to our podcast, I want to inform you that Taking the Lead will shift to a bi-monthly schedule in the coming year. Please join me for our next episode when I speak with Vivian Lee, founder and past president of Health Platforms at Alphabet's Verily Life Sciences and former Dean, Senior Vice President and Chief Executive Officer of the University of Utah Health, where she oversaw its rise as the nation's top-ranked university hospital for quality and safety by Vizient and as board chair oversaw a five-fold growth in the University of Utah's health plan. Currently serving as a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School and Massachusetts General Hospital and a senior fellow at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, Dr. Lee was recently ranked 11 among the 100 most influential people in all of healthcare by Modern Healthcare. A member of the National Academy of Medicine, gold medalist of the International Society of Magnetic Resonance in Medicine, and author of the acclaimed book, The Long Fix, Solving America's Healthcare Crisis with Strategies that Work for Everyone, Dr. Lee is an active radiology leader with unparalleled accomplishments and experiences. Taking the Lead is a production of the Radiology Leadership Institute and the American College of Radiology. Special thanks go to Anne-Marie Pasco, Senior Director of the RLI and co-producer of this podcast. To Port City Films for production support, Linda Sowers, Megan Swope, and Debbie Kakal for our marketing and social media, Brian Russell, Jen Pendo, and Crystal McIntosh for technical and web support, and Shane Yoder for our theme music. Finally, thank you, our audience, for listening and for your interest in radiology leadership. I'm your host, Jeff Rubin, from the University of Arizona College of Medicine in Tucson. We welcome your feedback, questions, and ideas for future conversations. You can reach me on Twitter at G-E-O-F-F-R-U-B-I-N or using the hashtag RLITakingTheLead. Alternatively, send us an email at RLI at ACR.org. I look forward to you joining me next time on Taking the Lead.